The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. It is Wednesday afternoon. I am Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. And I'll be sitting in for Leslie today. Thank you all for tuning in. We have a packed show to t- uh, today to discuss two topics that are on the minds of many Americans. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the Trump administration's decision to end the DACA program and what Congress must do to protect those who are undocumented because they were brought to this country when they were young. And later in the show, we'll be talking about policing reform with Kanye Bennett of the ACLU and Madhu Grawal of the Constitution Project. Recently, there were rollbacks by the Justice Department on several key police accountability policies. And this continues a trend that the Department of Justice has started during this administration. So if you want to be part of the conversation, please call in at 1-888-6LESLIE. That's 1-888-653. 7543. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. And if you want, follow me as well at Ed Chung Tweets. That's E D C H U N G Tweets. Uh, so, turning first here to the issue of DACA and uh, talking about also the possibility of congressional legislation, we have in studio two people, two of my colleagues from the Center for American Progress. First is Phil Wogan, Managing Director of the Immigration Team at the Center for American Progress. Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And also we have uh, Laura Munoz-Lopez, a special assistant who works with Phil on the immigration team. Laura, it's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thank you. So let's start talking uh, about what President Trump actually did. And just so everybody knows, you know, and is on the same page, DACA. What is what does DACA actually uh, stand for? Um, not only not only the words themselves, but um, what is DACA? What was the program that was just ended by the Trump administration? Sure. So. DACA stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This was a program that President Obama started in 2012, and it was basically a way of saying, look, we've got 11 million people here without status. Our focus is to go after serious threats to national security. We can't go after everyone. So, you know, young people who came here when they were really young, we're going to say, look, we're not going to go after you, and we're going to allow you, because we're not going to go after you, we're going to allow you to apply for a work permit and a temporary reprieve from deportation. And what we've seen over the five years that DACA, I want to say still is in place, um, is that nearly 800,000 young people have been able to come forward, register with the government, and get this work permit. And, and you know, we can talk about the results, but it's been a remarkably effective and pretty amazing program as a whole. And Laura, you were one of those 800,000 that received um, this uh, this work visa under the DACA program. Talk a little bit about what that process was. I mean, what what you had to go through in order to receive this status, and also now your feelings and your thoughts now that the uh, now that the program is ending or or is ended. Yeah, so until very recently, I was one of the DACA recipients. Um, I was able to adjust my status, so I'm no longer a DACA recipient, but 
when it came out in 2012, I was one of the over 10,000 people at Navy Pier in Chicago who showed up to get help with this application. And it was nerve wracking. You know, it was the first time that the government in a way like welcomed us um, and allowed us to step out of the shadows and be recognized as being here in the United States. And so, you know, with that, it with the um, work permit and not being able to get deported, I was able to legally work. I was able to attend college, something that I never thought I was going to be able to do. And I really was able to like live my life in public and not be afraid of being stopped by a police. I was no longer afraid to even like see a police on the street in terms of like, you know, are they going to stop me and ask me for any documentation? And I grew up in South Carolina, so it took a way off my shoulders. But now that the program essentially is being um, you know, is winding down. I still have a sister who is a DACA recipient, and she is not able to renew with this time frame until October 5th. So essentially, she's out of luck. Um, and my both of my parents are undocumented. So I'm now part of like, well, I'm still part of a mixed status family. I have a brother who's U.S. citizen. So we all feel very differently about it because it is affecting us in a different way. Um, but we're just unsure of what's going to happen next. And so this is very personal. And Phil, this is a, a recent development that the Trump administration um, uh, took on or, or, or implemented. What was the impetus behind doing it so quickly? Because Previously, this was something that wasn't on necessarily sure. the Trump administration's radar. They were going at immigration at a whole different level with a, a lot of other bad policies. But this one, it seemed like it was not going to be a priority. What happened to compel this action now? Yeah, it's a really good it's a really good question. I mean, we, we saw Trump as a campaigner talk about that he's going to end DACA. It's going to be one of his first things. But then he got into office and, you know, he started saying, well, dreamers, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm going to treat you with a big heart. This is, you know, January, February, March. More recently, 10 states led by Texas sent a letter to the government saying, look, if you, President Trump, don't end DACA by September 5th, we're going to sue. And through a particularly arcane legal process, probably be able to end the program through the courts. And even though we at least believe this isn't a real legal threat and this isn't something that the Trump administration had to do anything about, they took it seriously. And, and, and you know, on, uh, just two weeks ago, President Trump announced that he was ending DACA with this six-month wind down. So starting on March 5th, people will start losing their work permits at around 1,400 people per day, we think. And it's going to be a, a pretty major catastrophe if we yeah. get there. So we have the six-month window, but um, Laura, you also talked about October 5th. And so for both of you, what what's the magic uh, around October 5th? Why is that such an important date in um, in this whole process? I mean, Phil, I know you can talk to, the, the, if you want to take the specifics away. Yeah, I mean, so, so in ending this program with a six-month delay, as they've called it, the Trump administration made it clear that if you have a permit that, that expires in that six months, so if your work permit, if your two-year reprieve from deportation under DACA ends by March 5th, you have to apply by October 5th. So they gave a very short amount of time, and we're talking about less than two weeks from now. You have to get your applications in to the government or else your status will just expire when it is. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I think, one more way that DACA recipients are really being thrown into limbo. So you've got a very short amount of time to get the, the hefty fee to apply for DACA. It's $495, so it's not a small amount of money. Get your paperwork together and be able to apply 
to make sure that you have that reprieve. Um, you know, we've seen governors like uh, the governor of Rhode Island come out and say they're going to cover any DACA fees in the state of Rhode Island. And we're seeing a lot of private funders step up. But, you know, we're still talking about a significant number, about 150,000 people who are going to have to apply by October 5th. And, and Laura, you were talking about the fact that you went to college. Um, you now work at a think tank. You work on immigration policy. Um, but what? how old were you when you came into the United States? And in terms of other people you know who may have the same status that you had, um, what are some of the stories that you're hearing from them, not only about their experience here, but kind of what they're facing over the next six months? Mm -hmm. So I came to the United States when I was four from Colombia. My sister was 18 months old. Um, and of course, we did not come here with any any choice of our own. We didn't tell our parents, hey, let's go to the United States. Yeah, your sister at 18 months would have been that, uh, yeah. a genius child if she could have articulated <laughs> Very that. outspoken. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we grew up in this country and this country has always been our home. We have never seen Colombia as, um, our, as our home country. Um, everything we know has been taught to us in the United States. We grew up in the public education system, went to public schools, participated in extracurricular activities, our churches. I mean, this is, this is our home. And I can say very confidently that that's how other DACA recipients feel. You know, we wouldn't be so passionately about this work and about trying to have this protection um, for them and for themselves if 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 this wasn't home to them. You know, so it's very. And Phil, just uh, quickly before we go to break, I just want to say or ask you about some of the other voices that have come out. Um, you know, law enforcement has come out and talked about this particular issue. Uh, you know. Leaders in the community, business leaders have come out and talked about this issue. Um, what are some of the things that you're hearing about the support for continuing the DACA program? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, as much as the immigration debate can be polarizing in many ways, this issue is something that we've seen bring together the right, the left. It doesn't matter which side, what party you're on, we're seeing people from all walks of life come out. So just this morning, 800 business leaders sent a letter to Congress, to the government saying, we need to pass the DREAM Act. We've seen faith leaders, we've seen law enforcement, pretty much everyone across the board says we need to do something about this. And we're going to talk about the DREAM Act when we come back from break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Ed Chung, sitting in for Leslie. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 8886 Leslie. And welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung sitting in for Leslie today, and we're talking about DACA, the Dream Act, and what solutions there are. With me is Phil Wogan and Laura Munoz Lopez from the Center for American Progress. And Phil, we talked about before the break the fact that uh, President Trump uh, ended this program, but there is a six month window uh, where some fix could happen. What is the solution? Who, where, who has the, who has the ball right now, and uh, who needs to step up in order to make sure that uh, this, the DACA population uh, or this Dreamer population is protected? Sure. So the ball is now very firmly in Congress's court. Congress has that six months. 
less than six months now, like you say, to pass a bill. Um, the, the, the probably most probable path forward is the Bipartisan DREAM Act, which is a bill that's been around for a while, but that would provide um, not just a, a temporary fix or not just that temporary protection you get with DACA, but would actually allow these young people, these dreamers, to get a pathway to permanent status and eventual citizenship to become fully integrated. Um, it's something that Lindsey Graham and uh, Dick Durbin, senator from Illinois and South Carolina, a bipartisan group introduced in July. Uh, there's a companion bill in the House. And it's something that we're really seeing support from both sides of the aisle on. We think the most likely path is that we end up uh, getting a bill this year. And, and certainly uh, there are a number of must-pass appropriations bills and other things that it could be attached to in December. But our goal is to get passage of the DREAM Act ASAP so that people in limbo right now are not waiting six months for that protection. Laura, you said that when you receive DACA protection that afterwards you now no longer need that status and you receive a different status. So when if the DREAM Act passes or, or legislation like it passes, then what does that mean? What's the difference between the statuses under DACA and then statuses under something like the DREAM Act? Yeah, uh, so the so DACA essentially you have to renew every two years and there's a possibility that you may not get that renewal approved. Um, the biggest difference would be that the DREAM Act completely takes that away and this is a permanent solution. You're no longer having to worry about a renewal and coming up with the fees every two years, you know, what that means to your educational career, to your personal career. Um, you would be able to vote, be a participating voice in the community that you have lived all along. Um, and essentially, you're no longer a second-class citizen, right, in this country that you've grown up in and that you've grown up in and that you have called home. And hopefully it also means that you're going to be able to help your parents in the long run who really are the original dreamers. Yeah, and Phil, there's, there was a, a companion program that was associated with DACA, it was DAPA as well. And what is the status of DAPA, um, D-A-P-A? And I'm gonna leave it to you to, uh, to, to, to let the audience know what that acronym stands for. Sure, 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 sure. So after the original DACA program for, for people who came here at a young age, was put in place in 2012, in 2014, especially after the failure of immigration reform, President Obama created a new program called Deferred Action for, for uh, Parents of Americans. And this was basically a program to say, in the same way that DACA was about smart prioritization of enforcement resources, we can't go after everybody, so we're going to say, look, we're going to take those dreamers out of that enforcement population. This was the same thing in saying, look, for parents of U.S. citizen children or permanent residents, right? you could apply for a similar temporary reprieve and a work permit. It was estimated it would affect about 4 million people, uh, but it was something that was challenged almost immediately in the courts by Texas. Uh, they found a judge in Texas that was very, very hostile to immigration and to the program, um, and you know, that judge put it on hold, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, where a divided Supreme Court was not able to rule or move it forward. So. And, and that was the same... Uh, Texas Attorney General, Texas court that was threatening with oh, yeah. lawsuits and litigation for DACA as well. Yeah, it, that is exactly right. I mean, it's the same thing. And, and you know, Texas really is, uh, unfortunately, a leader in anti-immigrant actions. They also passed a, a state-level bill that was just uh, put on hold by the courts that would have been one of the harshest anti-immigrant bills on the state level that we've seen in years. So I know we're just a few weeks into this six-month period, but from your perspective now, what's the prospect look like? Where where is the um, where where are, where are members of Congress? Where is the Senate on this? Um, what does it look like for the future? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I personally am optimistic. I think we've seen a large number of members of both parties come out and say, look, we need to do something about this. The Trump administration, I think, to its credit, and only gets partial credit because it did end DACA, you know, they've been pushing for a fix. Um, so I think there's a will. It's just a question of where the way is. And, and, you know, unfortunately, right now, Congress is incredibly gridlocked. It's still polarized. And so, you know, we and others really have to, to build that momentum to, to push Congress to act and, and take action immediately. So we put a pin on a top pin in a topic that we briefly mentioned before, which was everything else that the Trump administration is doing on immigration, whether it's border wall or whether it's sanctuary cities or, or the like. Uh, in your opinion, what's what's the other thing to keep in mind? Or is DACA kind of taking over the entire um, you know policy field right now so that people aren't focusing on something else? Yeah, I mean, this is a really important thing. So two things I'd say here. One of the reasons why we can't lose sight of the fact that this administration has ramped up immigration enforcement, particularly against people with no criminal records to record high levels, is because they keep saying, look, DACA recipients, you're safe, you're safe. We've already seen them detain and deport multiple DACA recipients. And so my concern is if we don't get a fix soon for DACA, those people are going to end up very vulnerable. But we also have about 430,000 people here on what's known as temporary protected status. This is a status given to individual, to people from certain countries that have had natural disasters or you know armed conflicts, think like El Salvador from Haiti, those sort of countries. Those are all expiring over the next few months, and this administration has signaled that they may not renew that. And you've got you know, 400,000 people who have been here for a long time, who have been working here legally with this status that might be thrown into the undocumented population. And that's something that we're watching very closely. And your team at CAP uh, recently came out with an issue brief that talks about uh, the benefits, the economic benefits of uh, DACA recipients and, and how, integrate into the fabric of American society they are. Talk a little bit about that and where can they find that report? Sure. So we've got a number of resources on the CAP website. That's AmericanProgress.org. Uh, the most recent study we put out was on the economic impacts of passing the DREAM Act, which found that passing the DREAM Act, legalizing those dreamers would be incredibly helpful, not just to the dreamers themselves, but to actually ordinary Americans who would see GDP rise and their own incomes go up. We've also done surveys of DACA recipients showing that they'd be able to get better and better paying jobs, helping their families, paying more taxes. We've got a lot of good materials on there. My thanks to Phil Wolgan and Laura Munoz-Lopez from the Center for American Progress, the immigration team. Please visit AmericanProgress.org if you want some more information. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about another issue, another important issue that's coming out of the Justice Department, the issue of police accountability. We'll be right back on The Leslie Marshall Show. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for today, Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress. The number here, if you want to join the conversation, is 1-888-6-LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-653. 
888-888-7543. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Leslie Marshall, and also you can follow me at Ed Chung Tweets. So in the past month, the Department of Justice overturned or discarded a, a couple important policies related to police accountability. Most recently, DOJ shuttered the Collaborative Reform Program, which was initiated by the DOJ's Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, or the COPS Office, and that was to partner with police departments that know that they have deep organizational issues that need to be resolved. And then earlier this month, the Trump administration, throughout the Obama administration's policies related to how and whether state and local law enforcement can obtain what has been colloquially termed military equipment. So. Joining me today is Kanya Bennett, Legislative Counsel at the ACLU, and Mabu Growl, Senior Counsel at the uh, Constitution Project. Thanks to both of you for being here today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So Jeff Sessions has not been a friend to police accountability, to say the least. Um, one of the first things that he had talked about when he came in was the idea that uh, the federal government uh, may not have a place in uh, in police accountability. So what does that actually mean in practical terms, not only for communities, but also for law enforcement and also for the Department of Justice? Kanye, we'll start with you. Sure, thanks, Ed. So certainly this administration, this Department of Justice, Attorney General Sessions at the helm has made it no secret that they believe there should be no federal intrusion when it comes to state and local policing. This essentially means that any oversight that had been provided by the federal government, any accountability that had been provided by the federal government is no more. No more. So we are seeing programs like collaborative reform being restructured entirely to better fit this administration's agenda. We are seeing policies and protocols that were put in place around military weapons and equipment that the federal government had been giving to state and locals being eliminated. We are seeing talk of the Department of Justice walking away from consent decrees. So any any place where there was a role for, and sometimes this was a statutorily prescribed role for the federal government, any role that they were playing, we now see that being eliminated. And Mother, you in your work, you ha you work with law enforcement, um, and you you have working groups or or. or conversations, frequent conversations with law enforcement. What's the reaction from law enforcement that you work with on the change uh, that this administration is pursuing? Yeah, that's right. So at the Constitution Project, I mean, one of the things that we do is we have these committees um, of sort of unlikely allies, and one of them is our policing committee. And it's actually made up of former military, former law enforcement, and also defense attorneys and advocates and academics. And, and they actually came out with a report last year about the use of military equipment by law enforcement. But more broadly, I think they've been really concerned about the tone and rhetoric coming out of this administration, and in particular, you know, you've seen uh, speeches by Sessions, the memo that he issued to um, DOJ-wide in March, kind of taking on this law and order rhetoric and and kind of uplift, uplifting failed policies, enhanced penalties, increased arrests, crackdowns on communities of color, policies that sort of implicitly endorse racial profiling. And what we're going to see is less accountability and oversight of police misconduct and fatal shootings. And to, to our policing committees, that's not the direction we want to go. Our policing committee um, actually felt like the Obama era reforms to the military equipment programs didn't actually go far enough, um, that, the, that more could have been done. And so 
to see this administration roll back any of those reforms um, was deeply troubling to a number of them. So let, let's tell the listening audience how we know each other. First of all, I mean, I, I came out of the Justice <laughs> Department um, in the last administration, and we worked together on this issue of uh, military equipment. We also, in all of, a lot of our conversations, had law enforcement right at the table. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of this um, this ongoing discussion about what are the right policies that should um, should guide it. Some of it was pushing to do more and some of it was pushing to do less. And so, Malu, first, what was your take on, um, and, and I won't take any offense to this, but what was your take on what, what happened, what, what needed to happen? And even with what I'm assuming that some of your colleagues may think are modest reforms, r- rolling some of those back um, in terms of military equipment, um, what's the result of that? Right. So, so you're right, Ed. We were we were sort of on different sides of the table, um, just you know a couple of years ago in talking through these reforms. Many advocates felt like the um, Obama interagency working group didn't could have put more prohibited equipment and controlled equipment um, on those lists. And of course it didn't. And, and part of that was the feedback that you received from law enforcement and you were open and willing to hear that feedback and accommodate many of those voices. Um, so we actually, just uh, right after the session's announcement was made, over 60 groups from the right and the left sent a letter to Congress saying we're really concerned about the rollback of um, these programs, setting aside for a minute the fact that the reforms were completely eliminated, but um, the fact that none of this was really communicated very well to the stakeholders who had been involved in those discussions. There used to be stakeholder working groups under, you know, and you convened these, and and we were, since Trump has taken office, we have not seen any of those stakeholders brought back together or even receive any sort of explanation about what's next. And that's what this letter from over 60 groups is calling for. Um, it's calling for a moratorium on the 1033 program until we can understand what's going to happen with oversight, what's going to happen when this equipment is abused. And um, I just want to quickly also follow up to say that announcement was made right after this GAO report was released. Um, the GAO examined the 1033 program. They created a fake federal law enforcement agency and was able to obtain over a million dollars of military equipment. And this is supposedly when the Obama <laughs> reforms were have, supposed to have been implemented. So those weren't working. Um, and and instead, you have this this administration kind of saying, Oh, well, don't worry about that. We're just going to rescind those reforms. Kanya, following up on that, in terms of, um, you know, the way that this administration, this Trump administration is approaching um, just, you know, discarding or not even considering the effects of this, except for how it affects law enforcement. From your perspective, what are you hearing from your colleagues and from the communities that you work with on the importance of maybe not even bringing this back, um, but even going forward uh, even further, and the bipartisan support, as Madhu was saying, um, that's behind this effort. Sure. So Madhu really laid out sort of all that is wrong with the administration taking the action that it just did recently, this executive order to roll back the Obama era policies around military weapons and equipment that were given to state and locals. We 
have heard that communities do not want to be policed with weapons of war. We heard that a few years ago in the aftermath of Ferguson, and we continue to hear that now. And there are certainly some law enforcement agencies that have said that we do not need these weapons of war to police communities. We've heard the opposite as well, but it is good to hear that we do have some law enforcement allies on this. So in terms of what the Obama era policies looked like, one of the real centerpieces was not so much the military equipment that was prohibited, the weapons that were prohibited. As you know, as Madhu knows, we probably gave you a lot of grief about not going far enough. This is not a, this, this is not a time for like, it's not a counseling session. We don't have to go through that. But we do thank you for bringing all of these stakeholders together, having conversations with us at the same time. I think that really provided for a lot of transparency. So seriously, thank you for that. But what we want now is communities to take control of the equipment that may or may not be coming. And so what the ACLU has done is put forward a model bill that gets back to some of the centerpieces of the Obama era policies that I was referencing. You all require that communities provide approval. A city council, a county council, a local governing body had to sign off before these weapons of war came to one's town. And so we're looking to do that through the model bill. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. We're talking with Kanye Bennett and Madhu Grau from the Constitution Project. Kanye is from the ACLU you we have a caller michael on line three from the bronx michael you're on the leslie marshall show greetings everybody i had to call in on this very important topic because it's not just the rescinding of um this particular obama bill but the very fact and i use that word fact that this administration trump sessions are encouraging police brutality and directing it towards people of color and directing it towards um, minorities because and even getting their own followers that are not police officers to engage in the same racial prejudicial abuse. You know, we've seen and heard it all at Trump's rallies and it even gotten worse at an address he made in Long Island towards police officers that would see nationwide telling them, don't be so nice to suspects. Go ahead and rough them up a bit. Go ahead and slam their head on the um, patrol vehicles. I mean, what kind of message is that sending? And then we have the military um, weapons coming in. I mean, this guy, this is an administration just wants to annihilate everybody that is of opposition to them and is... Um, who doesn't look like them? You know, yeah. The white nationalism thing. Now, I have a solution for those that have um, civil suits pending against abusive police officers. The thing is, I've seen and heard time again. They'll name the police officers. They name the police department. They'll name the city as defendants as where the um, incident occurred. The thing is, do not name the city because who foots the bill? It's the taxpayers. Much of the taxpayers are on your side. Yeah. But the one group that- Hey, Michael, we're going to have to uh, stop you right there. And the, what's interesting, Michael raised the point about what the Trump administration has doing in terms of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And in the Obama administration, there were a lot of pro law enforcement groups that looked at what or heard what President Obama said and took that and was just chastising him for 
the language that he used and what their interpretation of that is. And so what are you seeing these days in terms of the language that this administration is using and also the policies that back them up? I mean, one of the things that just recently happened was, the, the as we mentioned at the top, the rollback of uh, collaborative reform, which is a voluntary partnership, mm -hmm. Kanye. Sure. So as both Madhu and the caller, Michael, referenced, we have heard very disturbing rhetoric coming out of this administration. So while this Department of Justice, this Attorney General, this President want to say, hey, the feds are going to back off, we do not want to insert ourselves into local matters, they are quick nonetheless to guide police department in this heavy-handed, very law and order, tough on crime approach to policing. We have heard this administration call for broken windows. We have heard this administration call for biased policing. We have heard this administration call for policies that quite frankly, I thought we were well, well beyond. So what does this mean? It means that we are in a really bad place with respect to combating this administration. And, and again, looking for allies, both law enforcement and members of the community to push back. Mother, what are you uh, hearing in terms of um, now that we are in this environment, the things that can be pushed. It, it, let's say we're, we're people who are interested in this are hitting their heads on the table when we're talking about what DOJ is going to do. But what what are some of the other avenues or mm -hmm. options that could be pursued? So one thing I, I think is important to remember is that not all law enforcement is on board with the Trump rhetoric, right? That you had a number of law enforcement leaders who were on the president's, oh, President Obama's 21st Century Task Force that issued this great report. There were law enforcement leaders out there endorsing these new policies and reforms. And those law enforcement leaders um, have been out there recently. You know, during police week, there, were, there was a letter sent up to the Hill by law enforcement calling for programs that support mental health services for officers, that call for crisis intervention training for better mental health. Um, crisis intervention training that incorporates mental health services so that cops aren't the ones that are that are using that are um, implementing mental health or acting as mental health professionals they're calling for better data collection um, and so there are there are law enforcement leaders out there I'd really like to, to hear from them more um, to kind of push back on this narrative and then I just wanted to follow up on what the caller had said about this rhetoric coming out of um, the Trump administration and and, and the efforts to sort of uh, to to combat any dissent or criticism of this administration. Um, I think that the use of military equipment on protesters is a serious First Amendment concern, and one that you know, if you're not concerned about policing, you should be concerned about the First Amendment implications of the use of military equipment and these tactics on protesters. And I wanted to make sure that I flag that for people as something that is increasingly being, wor you know, we're worried about um, watching these protests nationwide and the use of military equipment and tactics on protesters. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a lot of situations where um, policing and First Amendment uh, issues intersect. I mean, we saw that in Charlottesville in terms of the way that right. um, there was criticism of the Charlottesville Police Department in allowing what happened to happen and fester and go forward. Um, and But the same situation may not have happened in a different city and in a different environment. And so um, we're going to close off right there. Kanya, 
Uh, Malu, where can they find your work? Where can they find uh, what you're doing and what you're up to on this issue? Sure. So lots of our work is showcased on the ACLU website, which is www.aclu.org. We also have a blog that is very active and lots of discussions around policing. So encourage folks to check out the blog for the latest on what's going on in the policing space and other criminal justice issues. We are at www.constitutionproject.org. We are also on Twitter at ConPro, and I'm also on Twitter tweeting about these issues at Madhu, M-A-D-H-U-G-R-E-W-A-L. Yeah, and I just want to close it off um, by this discussion by, you know, just mentioning that being or calling for better policing and calling for constitutional policing and even criticizing police practices doesn't necessarily mean and doesn't mean that you're anti-police. It would be like criticizing your, your government um, generally and saying that you're anti-American or that you're anti-government you know, government as, as a whole. And I think some of that rhetoric in terms of um, you know the, the blame game here of being able to criticize, we're going back to the First Amendment discussion that we're talking about, being able to freely criticize without uh, the the backlash, um, especially backlash from governmental entities, is something that's foundational in, in America. And so I think that's something that we really have to keep in mind going forward. Thanks to Madhu. Thanks to Kanya. Uh, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after this break. Thank you. And welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung sitting in for Leslie today. And as we close up this program today, I want to bring back the conversation that we just had regarding policing and the importance of policing, but also the importance of being able to freely voice your opinion, even if it is being critical of government entities. I, I always was uh, thinking when we were having this, this discussion, should we come back and just to make sure that, uh, and we say that we're uh, we're not anti-police and, and we want to make sure that we support law enforcement, which is all true. I think one of the things that in this discussion particularly, uh, that, it, that the fact that we had to have that kind of pause or that, that kind of pause and question entered my mind is a problem with this discussion because we're always talking about blaming and we're always talking about trying to say if you're anti or pro something. And so especially when it comes to law enforcement, we can say that the issue here is that we want, everybody wants good policing and everybody wants constitutional policing and that police officers, just like everybody else, when they do their job and uh, most of them do their job, many of them uh, do their job the way that they were trained and then the way that they, um, with the good intentions coming into it, when that happens, um, it is something that is absolutely supported. But in those instances where either the actual uh, act or something happens where it is against the law and where law enforcement does violate the law, they, like everybody else, need to be held accountable. And that's not being anti-police. So when you say that a particular police department has policies that lead to bad policing and you point that out, that's not being anti-police. That is a community taking 
investment and ownership of their government entities, the entities that are supposed to serve them. And when you're talking about the policing profession and saying that every so often, especially, the, a profession has to reevaluate itself and to make sure that it's being true to its core mission and understand what its true mission is, that is not being anti-police. That is being pro-police and that is being pro-good policing. So I hope we can have constructive discussions. I know it's difficult in this environment to do that, but if we can have constructive discussions on that and in that way, I think that we could hopefully at least make progress, whether it's incrementally or not. Had a great time talking with you all today. My thanks to my guests today. Uh, and I want to thank Leslie Marshall, who will be back with you. Uh, this has been The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress. Hope you all have a good rest of the day.